Built Not Born, Episode 6. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, where each episode, we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Dr. Christy Arts. Dr. Arts is an emergency medicine physician based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She is a graduate from the University of Michigan, Go Blue, attended medical school at Wayne State University. Dr. Arts did her residency in emergency medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Christy shares her story of how she became the first physician in her family, how she wound up in emergency medicine, and why in the middle of two successful medical careers, her and her husband decided to uproot their family of five to the North Island of New Zealand and spend a year treating an underserved population in a rural hospital's emergency room. Christy's time in New Zealand included everything from treating Ironman competitors to working on the helicopter transport team. Pretty cool. But Christy's biggest pivot and primary focus of our conversation is in the emerging field of lifestyle and culinary medicine. Christy has now focused her medical practice for the last 10 years on working with her patients to stay out of the emergency room in the first place by helping them adapt a whole foods, plant-based lifestyle. Christy and I discussed the current science that promotes a whole foods, plant-based diet as a tool for not only just preventing chronic diseases that run in so many families like high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, even cancer, but reversing those conditions with patients that are already suffering from those diseases. We will discuss the problems with our current medical system that treat chronic diseases like their acute problems. We will also discuss why Dr. Arts hates the word moderation and why she believes centering your diet on whole foods is the most powerful lifestyle change a person can make. Dr. Art shares a bunch of helpful tips and ideas of how you and your family can live a longer, healthier life. And she also lists a ton of books and useful websites that I will link in the show notes below. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of thought-provoking, cool interviews like this one to come. And remember, life is built not born. Christy Arts, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be here. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? Well, that's a big question. I am a mom of three and I'm an emergency medicine physician. My husband is an ear, nose, and throat physician. So I love that we met you way back when we were still not quite doctors yet. <laughs> but we, I grew up in Michigan. My husband did as well. We currently reside in West Michigan in Grand Rapids. And we both practice medicine here. We raise our family. We, as I mentioned, have three daughters. The oldest is in high school. So we keep ourselves busy with our family and our work. Over the last, I don't know, five to 10 years, I've really transitioned my career from focusing on acute care, uh, helping patients in their worst moment in the ER to really now um, entering into the preventive space with lifestyle medicine and culinary medicine and trying to help patients optimize their health before they 
hopefully have to end up in the emergency department. I want to do a deep dive into the lifestyle medicine and what made you go there, but just take a step back. Where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Metro Detroit area. I'm one of three kids. I'm the first physician in my family. So it was a leap of faith. I graduated from the University of Michigan and then went to medical school, Wayne State in Detroit. And that's where actually my husband and I met. And I, I was always a science geek. I, I loved science when I was in middle school and high school. For a while, I thought I wanted to be a science journalist. I loved to write, but I have to admit I got away from that when, <laughs> when I entered medicine. But then entering into my classes and, and coursework in undergrad, finding that I, I guess I had an aptitude, fortunately, for the, the health sciences and particularly organic chemistry where that's one of the big weeder classes. And I was able to get through that. And just that was my path forward. I realized I wanted to go to medical school and was fortunate to be offered the opportunity to go to school at Wayne State in Detroit, which is a fantastic medical school in downtown Detroit, really serving that community and just the training that I received there, very hands-on training, and then followed that by residency training at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and spent my early career there after um, finishing residency training. So what is it about organic chemistry. So many physicians told me that's the obstacle. That's the one where they decided once they got through that, they were mm -hmm. able to go forward. What, what is it about that course that is such a gauntlet to becoming a physician? It's one of the initial early on classes. It's the weeder class that you have to take either freshman or sophomore year in college in order to stay on that pre-med tract. It's just a different way of thinking. And many people find that it's just not for them, the, the way that you have to consider that aspect of science. So biology comes more naturally, I think, to a lot of people. And I ended up getting my degree in biology, but I found that organic chemistry was fun. It was exciting. It was very conceptual. And I didn't struggle with it, but many other people struggle and they decide this is not their path and they're going to go on and find something else awesome to do. So when you went to Penn for your training as an ER physician, how did you pick of all the specialties? How did you pick emergency medicine? I really enjoyed all of my clinical rotations when I was a medical student. Training in Detroit was very hands-on. So I was scrubbing into surgeries and I was first assist for emergency surgeries at some of the hospitals in Detroit. And that was as a, a medical student. So I really loved the procedural aspect of medicine. I loved caring for children and adults. So it, it really became an issue that I liked a little bit of everything rather than wanting to hone in on just one aspect of medicine. And emergency medicine was exciting. It was always different. It's this environment where it's based on teamwork. So I was just really drawn to that. And it was, I would definitely say it was a, a growing area of medicine too at the time. So there were a lot of um, students, medical students that were interested in emergency medicine, and it was becoming more well-established as a medical specialist. I would say too. How much does an ER, like a busy ER in Philadelphia, where, where you were, 
resemble the show ER, which so many of us watched a few decades ago. What is real and what's not real? Yeah, obviously the drama that you see in those TV shows. There are always moments in a clinical shift in the ER, I would say at least half of the time, where you feel like you could be in a TV show. Like you just can't make this stuff up that you see and experience when you're taking care of patients in an emergency department. But certainly every patient is not that dramatic. And there are just run-of-the-mill things that happen like appendicitis and gallbladder disease and some of these things that are just a little less sexy. This is what we see or heart attacks. Those are the things that we're seeing day in and day out. Strokes, again, all of these very preventable conditions, which has really led me to lifestyle medicine. But yeah, so lots of drama in those TV shows, some based on reality, some some a little far-fetched. Before we get to lifestyle medicine, one of the really cool pivots I saw you do, and I'm always fascinated when people change what they do in the reasoning. When you were in Philadelphia, tell us what you did between Philadelphia and going back to Michigan. Where were you? Were we in the world? Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, we had been practicing for about I want to say three years, maybe a little bit longer. So we had finished our residency training, my husband and I, we'd started our family. So actually a little bit longer, maybe it was more like six years. And we came to a point and we said, medicine is one of those careers, those professions that doctors are needed all over the world. Unfortunately, one of my biggest regrets is that I never invested the time and effort to learn a foreign language. I took French in college, but never was very good at it. And that fizzled and I gave up on it. So we were a little bit limited in terms of what countries might we be able to go and practice in and really contribute to caring for that population. But also had always wanted to go to a region of the world, Australia, New Zealand, that's so far away that it re- it really requires a longer commitment to be able to explore that region. So I had, so Greg and I, my husband and I, we had talked about it. We knew it was going to be challenging to extract ourselves from our careers in Philadelphia to take our children and move them across the globe. But I found a, a position at a rural hospital on the North Island in New Zealand, a town called um, Taupo. And we went there for a year. And I worked full time in the ER in that community. And it was a really interesting place because it was rural medicine, resources were limited, but it was also a resort town. So during the winter, the population was around 20 to 30,000 people. But in the summertime, it could get upward to 80 to 90,000 people at any one time. So the volume in the emergency department just would explode in the summer. They did Ironman competitions. So we saw and motocross events. So lots of broken bones and traumas. I had to helicopter transport patients to some of the base hospitals where we would refer our patients that were more critical and needed more support and care. So a lot of really crazy stuff that happened that year. But we also got to travel regionally, explore a whole bunch of areas in New Zealand, North and South Island, really the most remarkable and beautiful country you could imagine. And then also regionally traveling to Australia and Fiji and places that are close when you're based in New Zealand. It's easy to travel to those places. So uh, fantastic year. Created a lot of challenges and upheaval, I would say, in our careers in some ways, but also opened up way different opportunities that probably would not have presented themselves otherwise. 
I remember having a little bit of uh, travel envy. I don't get envious much, but I remember some of the photos Greg sending me during the time when you're bouncing around the, the South mm-hmm. Pacific. And, and pretty, pretty phenomenal. So you come back to New Zealand, you find your way to Michigan. What was the pivot to lifestyle medicine post New Zealand? I had been exploring it prior to going to New Zealand when we were um, in Philadelphia and I was practicing in the emergency department when I wasn't working and could find some time to sneak away from caring for our young children at the time. I actually would drive up to North Jersey where there a physician who practiced nutritional based medicine and had been doing so for about 20 years, Dr. Joel Furman, author of Eat to Live and Super Immunity and just a trailblazer really in lifestyle medicine. So I would go up to his practice in in, like I said, in North Jersey and work with him for days and do some research with him and one of his physician colleagues that worked in that, that practice space. And so I was just super intrigued with how he was really flipping the equation with these patients that had gone through that typical sick care system that we are all so familiar with, uh, where we treat the acute problem or we treat a chronic disease like an acute problem, and we never really get to the root cause of what that condition originated from. And he really took a food-focused approach around disease reversal for autoimmune conditions, for diabetes, for cardiovascular disease. And he had remarkable clinical outcomes with his patients. And I just never had been exposed to that in medical school or residency. I learned very little nutrition education when I was both a resident and a student. And so my eyes were open to this world of both clinical research, all the nutritional research that existed that I had not been exposed to. That was my pivot. And I was also raising a family. We had these young children and we had to feed them. And I suddenly was confronted with this idea of kid food. And I look back to that and I think how terrible that we've all become accustomed to feeding our children mac and cheese and chicken nuggets and think that this is food that children can thrive on. And so I started to really question what we were feeding our children, how we were treating our patients, and where was the intersection. And I just, I knew I had to learn more. So coming back from New Zealand, I entered into a certification program in culinary medicine, which was my entry point into lifestyle medicine. And and culinary medicine, just for kind of a general description, is combine the art of cooking with the science of medicine and really skill-based learning around creating that optimal diet that promotes health for a lifetime, and then onward to um, lifestyle medicine certification through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. You mentioned not much of that is covered in medical school. Why do you think that is? It's like you're treating chronic diseases with an acute care approach. Why do you think now in 2021, you said 2021 back in 1990, you would think Jetsons, Space Age, everyone's flying cars. And here we are, and they're still not talking about the value of nutrition in medical school. Why do you think that is? Some of it is not surprising causes. It's industry influence, whether that's around animal agriculture, or we're told we need to drink milk to be healthy. It's the, the, the media that presents this confusion about nutrition. The internet, obviously, and having access at our fingertips to all types of information is great in so many ways, but it creates a lot of confusion around how should we eat in order to support our health. And then in 
in terms of the medical school and residency training is there's a comfort zone that I think has been developed around pharmaceutical approaches. And that has not typically included food is medicine. It's better than medicine. It prevents conditions so we don't need medicines. Dr. Michael Greger, who I know you're familiar with and really a trailblazer in lifestyle medicine, there is no kind of big broccoli funding research. You have uh, these industry influences around meat and dairy and eggs and, and studies that might be funded by those organizations, but these whole plant foods that ultimately provide healing and wellness for a lifetime just don't have big money supporting significant research. Although there is fantastic research and epidemiology, when we look around the world of, of populations, our blue zones, I don't know if you're familiar with that book, we can learn a lot from cultures around the world that have really established communities that have healthy longevity. So what that means with individuals that live to a lifespan, many centenarians living upwards of 100 years or more who are healthy and vital. They have their minds work well. They haven't developed dementia. They haven't developed cardiovascular disease and they're thriving in their ninth and 10th decade of life even. Mm -hmm. You brought up Dr. Michael Greger, and mm -hmm. he has a few books out there, How Not to Diet, How Not to Die. And here's a, a quote from him that maybe you could respond. He writes in the book, the human body is a self-healing machine. We just have to sit back and stop re-injuring it daily with the stuff we put into it, like bad food, drinking, and smoking, and let the body work its magic. Mm -hmm. you comment on that? Yeah, that's exactly the truth. It's it's The body is trying to maintain you know, homeostasis. It's trying to maintain this um, ability to heal itself. And under the right conditions, the body truly can heal itself. And Dr. Greger provides an analogy where you're out and about, you injure your arm, you have a cut on your forearm. Imagine if you keep banging that cut over and over again, the analogy being eating the standard American diet, the highly processed foods, the salt, sugar, and fat, the fast foods, the sodas, you never can then allow the body to heal that injured area. So it sets up the state of chronic inflammation. And ultimately, that's one of the mechanisms that that underlies a lot of our chronic disease. And, and that's the way that I like to speak about it to our community, whether it's our patients or even physician colleagues and, and residents, doctors in training, is to think about all of our chronic diseases as being interrelated. We've also segmented our um, healthcare system, where if you have a heart problem, you see the cardiologist. If you have a kidney problem, you see the nephrologist. If you have a brain problem, you see the neurologist. When in fact, if we adopt the whole food plant-based diet for one, if we move our body naturally every day, if we have restorative sleep, if we find ways to manage our stress, we can actually, those are the conditions in which your body can heal itself and prevent those diseases. One of the things Gregor writes in one of the books, I forget which one, but if you could comment on this, true or false, 80% of the diseases that run in families are preventable by diet. It's absolutely might, true. I think you might have mentioned to me once, I think it was your quote or either his, diseases run in families because diets run diets in families. Run in families. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that helps many people start to understand that concept a bit more because many individuals think they're a victim of their genetics. So mom and dad had diabetes or grandma and grandpa had dementia. And so 
you may have genetics that put you at higher risk for a condition, but genetics are not our destiny. So what we know from nutritional science, it's actually how those genes are turned on and off, much of that being influenced. One of the biggest influencers is the food that we put in our mouth. So we have a lot of ability to downregulate genes that might cause some of those diseases and upregulate other um, genes that might protect us from things like lifestyle-related cancers, think breast and prostate and, and colorectal cancer. So the reason that many times diseases run in families is because we are taught from a young age to eat a certain way because that's what our parents did. And we grow into adults that have similar conditions as our parents did because we're eating the same foods that cause those same diseases that our parents might have had. What do you say to the average person out there who's listening to this? Like almost weekly, there's a new diet out there. Every time if you watch the news, the people who still watch the news, there's a new article, new thing. It's grapefruit. You got to eat more grapefruit or uh, you got to eat oatmeal or yeah, it's whatever crazy supplements out there now that they're trying to sell, or there's some sort of half pseudoscience. I guess the question is, how does the average person know who to trust and where to start? It's a good question because there is a lot of confusion. I would say fundamentally, nutrition is not complex. We thrive on whole plant foods. And time and time again, when we study whether we isolate one particular phytochemical from a food, like a plant food, for example, or we look at a dietary pattern like the Mediterranean diet, for example, what we find time and again is that it's the um, whole plant foods that support our health. So there, most of the diet wars, the fad diets, many of them have more in common then what makes them different? So that's the other place that I like to begin with a lot of patients. It's not arguing and coming at it from a point that my way or the highway, but it's also knowing that science is always evolving, but the best science that we have available to us today proves time and again that when we center our plate and our diet on whole plant foods, whether you're entirely animal protein free, so maybe you choose to follow a vegan whole food plant-based lifestyle, or you include a small amount of a little bit of fish, or it's wherever that patient is willing to arrive at a place that meets their health goals. But fundamentally, like focusing your diet on whole plant foods is the biggest gift that we can give to our health. As I mentioned, it can prevent disease. It can help you better manage disease. Sometimes we can even see diseases reverse. I'm caring for patients in our lifestyle medicine practice in Grand Rapids, and we're seeing patients come off of their medication. So we like to be experts in de-escalating therapy. So taking therapies away because they're no longer needed, because the lifestyle habits that are now being implemented are improving those disease processes. And patients feel better. Initially, patients start to feel better. They're sleeping better at night. They have less fatigue. They don't have the mid-afternoon slump after having a meat and dairy heavy meal for lunch. They're recovering better after exercise. Their blood pressure is better managed. Their blood sugars, if they're diabetic, are becoming more consistent and lower. We're seeing all of these things, and it's through changing 
mostly diet, but then building in the other lifestyle habits as patients are ready and able to make changes. When you say vegan, vegan is like a bit of a cult. Like when I was first studying this and looking into it, my first perception are vegans are very dogmatic. They tell you what not to do instead of what to do. Take the documentary Game Changers, which probably a few people listening saw on Netflix done mm -hmm. by James Cameron. Uh, you have Arnold Schwarzenegger, one of the most famous people in the world at one point, Mr. Olympia. He's plant-based now. He said he would go back you know, and then he would tell people to stop eating meat. And they would just basically say, hey, Arnold, go F yourself. Like I'm going to eat meat. So people don't like you telling them what to do. So that's one mm -hmm. of the pushbacks. This is what I hear a lot. There's no way you can get enough protein on a plant-based diet. I got to have steak. I got to keep eating chicken. What mm -hmm. does science say to that? So it's absolutely false. Number one, if you're eating, so there's a difference. And just to clarify, I typically don't talk to patients about a vegan diet. Now, many people who follow a vegan lifestyle do it for ethical reasons. They want to not harm animals. And I, I fully support that. But a vegan diet can be based on Twinkies, and you're going to end up with the same metabolic diseases that are going to cause you problems in the long run. So the difference really is about adding in foods that are whole plant foods. And that's the place that we typically begin with a lot of our patients. So let's focus on a meal that you're ready to change. A lot of times, let's say it's breakfast and you're going from bacon and eggs to what might you be willing to change to? And so the next question will always be, what about eggs? And eggs are one of the last foods that I really meddle with until someone's ready to make a change because you can get some nutrition through an egg that can be optimal for some people. And you can act, it's what else can you bring into the diet with it? So let's swap out the bacon. Let's bring in some green leafy vegetables. Let's add spinach and peppers and onions and other whole plant foods to your eggs. And then as you start to work with patients and they start to feel those health improvements, they suddenly start to take them themselves closer and closer to a diet that's entirely centered on whole plant foods. And that's the way I talk about it with patients regarding the issue of, will I get enough protein on a whole food plant-based diet? hundred percent. Yes. And the standard American diet actually we, well, a couple things. I, as a physician in America, have never seen a patient who is protein deficient, aside from maybe the very elderly or someone who's had a severe burn or traumatic injury where protein needs are accelerated in order for the body to heal. The vast majority of us get way too much protein in our diet. And then what we see is something called IGF-1 is way too high in our blood. It, it helps to drive diseases like cancer and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So the, the protein equation, we're on the wrong side of it right now. We're getting far too much protein from animal sources on a standard American diet. We can also get optimal protein sources when we eat whole plant foods like beans and legumes, whole grains, nuts and seeds, and, and then of course our fruits and vegetables. So educating and providing that nutritional knowledge for patients is very important. If you take a cup of lentils that have 18 grams of protein, that's very similar to a four ounce uh, filet of salmon that has 20 grams of protein. So they're basically equivalent 
What we also then share with our patients is that when you're eating the lentils, you're also then getting a great source of fiber and the other plant nutrients, those phytonutrients that are contained with that within that lentil. And what you're getting with a fish or a chicken, for example, is saturated fat and you're not getting any source of fiber. So it's also what comes along with your protein. And that is critical when we think about reducing our risk for chronic disease. Say someone knows they have to eat a little healthier. They say, no, my diet's not great. It's not, maybe they don't think it's horrendous, but it it could definitely, there's room for improvement. What are a a couple of quick tips or tricks to get started on the path to healthy eating? Maybe they're not ready to go fully whole plant-based and throw all the the meat and the chicken in the garbage, but they're ready. Like, you know what? I'm going to make some adjustments. What's the first round of adjustments look like? For, for someone who's on that standard American diet? Sure. One, one thing would be, can you find a healthcare professional or a, a trusted individual that can help guide you through the process? Or you can do it on your own. There are great apps out there like Dr. Greger's Daily Dozen. That's a free app. And you can download that and start educating yourself and implementing those changes. Most patients can identify what I hear is a problem the most is that Within the family, not everybody's ready to change. So if you're cooking for a family, and while that individual might be ready to make a real diet overhaul, the rest of the family is not there. And they're, they want to eat the foods that they're comfortable eating. And they're not willing to make a lot of those changes that maybe that individual is willing to make. So oftentimes, many of our patients will start with a meal where they feel like they have more control over it. So maybe they're not sharing breakfast with the entire family or their lunch. So they feel like they can carve out that meal to start to make some of the changes that we work on together. And that can be a really nice entry point because they can begin to feel some of those changes and the benefits. They can start to build a comfort zone. We want to repeat a behavior enough so that becomes a trait. And that's the other thing. We have to practice these new lifestyle behaviors so that they become part of what we do. We also need to look at our surrounding environment. Do you have a bowl of fresh fruit available on your counter so you reach for that rather than going for the chips? That hopefully that's the other thing. Do you need to start with a pantry clean out? Again, it's going to be unique to each individual. Sometimes we have to start patients with a fast. We do medical fasting with our patients in order to reset their palate because they've been so highly addicted to the salt, sugar, and fat in processed foods. So again, it's very customized. It's very individualized to each patient, but it's very doable for someone who's listening today to say, I'm going to download the Daily Dozen app. I'm going to start understanding what foods um, I could start bringing into my diet, those whole plant foods, greens. Those are the high value foods that I often start with. Green leafy vegetables, cruciferous vegetables, things like broccoli and cauliflower, kale and Brussels sprouts, cabbages, ground flaxseed, having a tablespoon of that every single day, berries because of the amazing benefits that those phytonutrients from berries can give to our brain health and our cardiovascular health. I, I don't like to go to that term like superfoods, but there are foods that time and again, sh- tend to show this um, particular health benefit. So green leafy vegetables, berries, flaxseed, cruciferous vegetables, those are the, the biggest like bang for your buck. They're delicious. 
They're usually quite affordable. And then beans and legumes. So becoming accustomed to cooking and eating beans. That typically is a new concept for many patients. Again, the standard American diet typically does not include beans and legumes. So becoming familiar with them, how you cook them, how you might be able to do a bit of a protein swap. Maybe you've always had ground beef tacos. Can you now start to have half of the ground beef and half of it now being black beans? That might be another easy place to begin. What would you say to that person? Maybe they're, they think high blood pressure runs in my family, uh, high cholesterol runs in my family. It's just who we are. It's in my genes. What I eat doesn't matter. I could just take the pill, lower my blood pressure and eat what I want and enjoy my food. What would you say to someone like that? Oftentimes, it's a moment that you have with a patient to understand a question sometimes I'll ask is, if you change nothing right now, like what will your life look like in five years? And people will tell you like what they're worried about or who they want to be healthier for. It's oftentimes a family member, a child, a grandchild. So trying to tap into what we call their why for finding that internal desire to make a change. So really tapping into that and aligning the lifestyle goals to that why, that person's individual why, and helping them walk through the process of, if nothing changes, what are you concerned about? Mom and dad, dad had a heart attack when he was 55. I'm 50. I have all the same risk factors. Okay, let's talk about that a bit more. What are some changes and why do you want to become healthier? What are the things that you envision yourself doing, your healthier version of yourself? That's really the thing about lifestyle medicine is empowering an individual to become the best version of themselves and setting up an environment internally, the environment in their home, the environment in their community where the healthy and the health promoting choice becomes the easier choice for them. And that's really the goal. I heard this a lot growing up, everything in moderation, a little ice cream, a little chicken, little salad, little meat, nothing's going to kill you. What would you say to everything in moderation? I really hate the word moderation because it gets most of us in trouble because we all define what moderation is. One person might think that moderation is an entire container of Ben and Jerry's that they do once a week. They eat once a week. So moderation is this very vague term. It doesn't allow us to tap into that change process. It keeps us stuck in what we're doing every single day. So I never talk about moderation. We talk about building in lifestyle habits that support health. Oftentimes that means swapping in a better way to move, a better way to eat, a better way to set up restorative sleep. So moderation doesn't come into the equation. It doesn't mean that everybody is ready to jump you know, both feed into a full-blown lifestyle overhaul, but incremental change, celebrating those changes over time, they're impactful. You'll see and feel that clinical improvement. Patients will experience a better quality of life. And then that it's the self-perpetuating self-improvement once you tap into that. What would you say to the skeptic, hey, doctor, in the 80s, you told me to drink my milk at dinner. Then in the 90s, it was the Atkins diet. It was low carb, high fat. Then it was uh, a couple of years back, it was uh, sugar and processed carbs were the devil. Now I'm here. Now it's plant-based. Is just another fad or is 
Is this different than the last five things I heard over the last 30 years? I would say, look at where we are as a culture. It's chronic diseases, epidemic, upwards of 70% of our population is overweight or obese. We've gotten ourselves into this predicament by moderation, by the meat and dairy and the fast food and processed foods. When we look again, I'm going to use the blue zones as an example. We have great examples of cultures and populations. They eat a culture culturally relevant diet. It's centered on whole plant foods. It includes beans and legumes, whole grains, nuts and seeds, and fruits and vegetables. When we eat in that way, when we move naturally, when we really tap into these restorative lifestyle habits, we can live a life that is unburdened by chronic disease. So it's that goal of healthy longevity. Your clinical experience, could you speak to where you have seen someone come in maybe with the basic American conditions, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart disease, and a history of stroke in their family. And then they eventually made the switch and changed their diet. And they saw the, the real world clinical benefits. Could you speak to that? Yeah, and this is an everyday occurrence. Pretty much all of the patients that we see in lifestyle medicine, because chronic disease is so epidemic. Most patients come in with obesity and usually at least one other metabolic condition. So things like hypertension and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And we match them with where they're ready to begin with making changes. We'll typically work with patients over a period of time, three to six to nine months. And it's not uncommon for patients that we're working with, as I mentioned, to come off their blood pressure medications. There was one fantastic story of a really lovely woman who desired to start a family but had out-of-control diabetes. But by adopting a whole food plant-based diet, other lifestyle changes, and was able to get her you know, diabetes under control and in many cases come down on her medications to be able to start a family. And these are really inspirational stories, but they're also happening every single day. And there are, there's no other treatment in medicine that has the power of lifestyle change. So when we see a patient, again, from the emergency department perspective, if a patient has a, a heart attack and acute MI, yes, that patient needs to go immediately and have a stent placed in their coronary artery that's causing that heart attack to happen. Once that acute condition is under control, if that patient goes back to doing exactly what they were doing before that episode, they will find themselves back in that same situation. They may need a coronary bypass procedure done, but we can intervene with that patient. There's even great studies around um, plaque reversal for patients who have cardiovascular disease. But it needs to become more accepted in the medical community, and it is. I'm really optimistic about that. There's been this kind of revolution of seeing the immense value that lifestyle medicine can bring and going directly to our community. And that's the other thing that we've done. And Joe, I know you've been involved in some of the programs. When we go direct to our community and work with our community, especially with the virtual space, just makes it so much easier to do so, that we can start to help patients begin that lifestyle change. And it, it's in a different way, getting healthy in community. And community may look different. It may be your new best friends that you've met through adopting a whole food plant-based diet. Because you oftentimes need to find some new friends or different friends or to keep you consistent. 
Jim Rohn, who was a Tony Robbins teacher, Tony Robbins, that motivational speaker, he has a thing, who's in your five, who you hang out is who you become. You hang out with a bunch of smokers, you become smokers, you hang out with a bunch of jujitsu black belts, you start doing jujitsu in 10 minutes, you hang out with someone who loves yoga, you're doing yoga within an hour. If someone likes sitting down watching TV at some point in that day, you're going to sit down and watch TV with them. People are very herd animals or pack animals. So true. I'm going to be play devil's advocate here a little bit. I know my local community has some really smart people where we live, uh, really successful people. And I've seen quite a few over the last few years go keto. People are overweight. They go into keto. They lose 30 pounds. They say they never felt better. It, you see them, they're eating steaks and meat, butter in their coffee. They're all in. Instead of fat being the really bad for you, a fat's like the new multivitamin. It's just bacon, eggs, steak. And, and as long as it's grass-fed, everything's fine. What, what's... So no doubt people lose weight when they adopt a, a keto diet. And a couple things around that is keto diet is not what is now implemented for most individuals. A keto diet does not necessarily equate to a high animal protein diet, although that's the way it's usually implemented. In most people who are doing this, whether or not they even enter into that ketosis phase. So all that being aside, certainly if you start to lose weight, you probably will see your diabetes improve for a period of time. But the difference being, are we only focused on now in the next six months, or are we looking toward what our health might look like in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years? And if you're in it for the long game, which most of us are, I would say, then you need to consider what is that high animal protein diet doing to my vascular system. So we think about that chronic inflammation, we can talk about endothelial dysfunction. So the lining of our blood vessels, how it's affected by uh, saturated fats found predominantly in animal foods. Most people that adopt that high animal protein diet, that ketogenic way of eating, or even that low carb diet, will typically see them in lifestyle medicine, six or 12 months later saying, hey, like I lost a whole bunch of weight, but then my doctor checked my cholesterol and it had gone up by 80 points. So we hear that all the time. So while you're losing weight and thinking you're achieving that goal, which you may be, you're driving disease in so many other ways. So the beauty of plant-based eating is that you are reducing all of the risk factors for chronic disease by eating a diet that is delicious, that usually is more affordable over the long run. It does typically take some new skills and knowledge and recipes, and all of that can be overcome if you have a willingness to follow the science. And the science shows us that a diet centered on whole plant foods is the way to support our health. You mentioned you really have to restock the pantry or clear out the pantry. And it's a different way of thinking, a different way of shopping. But I could just speak for me. The, the benefits are real. I've been on it for maybe like a year and a half you know, since mm -hmm. you and I spoke. And there's not really one negative part of that the last year and a half I've seen from everything from the way you feel, which is subjective to what is objective when you see clinical numbers, when you do your yearly physical. It's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. The side effect that we hear most often by adopting a whole food plant-based diet is that people lose weight without trying. Think about that in comparison to some of the other medications or procedures that you might be advised to take. Or, and don't get me wrong, medications and procedures have a role. They are necessary sometimes, but if we can get to this 
preventive way of looking at caring for ourselves, we can probably then prevent any of those things from needing to happen. But you're absolutely right. You The weight loss and weight maintenance becomes much less effort. You do have to develop that skill set and that knowledge of different recipes that you go to. Your new go-tos with your families or how you feed yourself. We do a lot of bulk cooking. So there's always a different type of lentil soup that we're making, lots of different bean and sweet potato tacos. So there's just a wide variety of foods that you become accustomed to eating and enjoying and they taste delicious. And seasonal eating is another really super fun way to enjoy a whole food plant-based lifestyle. What is the most exciting project you are working on now? We have been at the health system where I am currently employed. We've been working with our own employees, our team members on some pilot programs around really disease reversal, ultimately. And this has been a really challenging time this year, obviously, with COVID and the stress that it's caused on our healthcare workers. So I love being having an opportunity to really work closely with some of those frontline workers or healthcare workers that are in supportive roles and helping them transition there. We have heard so many people say, and some of these quotes are from other physicians or nurses that have become our patients. And they said, I never knew this information. I had no idea that this was possible. And to see them be able to transform their health, the conditions that were limiting them in so many different ways to now be released from that, to have this new freedom and this vitality and excitement because they feel like they understand how to live their best life now. To give our listeners some resources, if you had to recommend a website or two, what would you recommend? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's so many good ones. So certainly we already spoke of Dr. Greger and his website, nutritionfacts.org. We use that often with our patients, his books, How Not to Die and How Not to Diet with a corresponding book. If you're a patient with diabetes, an individual with diabetes, mastering diabetes, and their website is fantastic. They have a book that goes along with that. Dr. Joel Furman with his Eat to Live book and Super Immunity. Uh, Forks Over Knives is another great site for information and recipes. For individuals who are worried about cognitive decline, Team Sharezai, they're amazing. They're a husband and wife, both neurologists, and they have the Alzheimer's Solution, which is a fantastic book. And they recently released a cookbook to go along with it. These are all physicians. They're all MDs and they all practice lifestyle medicine and have brought this in. Oh, and Fiber Fueled. That's the other one. Fiber Fueled. It's an amazing book from a gastroenterologist who treats his patients with a whole food plant-based diet as well. There's, I'll link these to the show notes when this goes live. How about a book? If you had to recommend, is there a book? If someone's, hey, I'm going to order something from Amazon tonight. I just want something just to skim over while I'm making up my mind. I know I got to make some sort of change. Maybe this is a change I need to make. What's a book or two that you would recommend? Yeah. Eat to Live, I think is a great entry point. How Not to Die is an amazing resource. It can feel a bit thick for some 
people when they look at it, because we have a small library in our lifestyle medicine practice, and we actually check out books for patients. And the back end of that book, How Not to Die, has a fabulous section around the foods to begin eating more of, those all those beautiful plant-based foods, those whole grains, nuts, seeds, beans, legumes, fruits and vegetables. And so that's a, a great entry point. And then the Ritual Podcast, that's another, well, that's one that I tap into all the time when I'm out for a walk and I feel like I want to tap into some of the other thought leaders around lifestyle medicine and other habit breaking, things like that. It's a great, it's another great entry point if you're, you learn that one way. One of the great podcast voices of all time, that, that perfect podcast voice, like that California laid back. <laughs> Yeah, like, I just wish I was that chill, laid back, and cool sounding <laughs> online. It's so cool. So I'd uh, be respectful of your time. End with some fun questions. Favorite movie of all time? Oh gosh, switching gears. Just totally switching gears. Okay, this is gonna seem really cheesy, but I love Legally Blonde, okay. and I've hey. watched it with my girls a bunch of times. <laughs> That's awesome. How about uh, non-science favorite book? If you br- bring us all into Barnes and Noble, what book would you say we need to get? Oh gosh, there's so many. Cutting for Stone was a book that I will never forget. It's just, yeah, read it sometime. Cutting for Stone. Mm-hmm. About what is say biggest challenge you ever faced? Probably moving the family to New Zealand. And how do you pack for a year with three children? We have trouble packing for the beach. Yeah, I can't imagine packing to New Zealand. Uh, that means. How about favorite failure you ever had or failure that propelled you forward in your career or life? Would a medical situation even qualify? I thought I understood and could really empathize with patients until I experienced a back injury that kind of, you know, through everything, I don't know, in perspective for me. So I feel that was a learning moment in my life for a year of really horrible pain and coming out of it the other end and actually learning like yoga has been my thing ever since. So it's, it was my teachable moment. Absolutely. There's a sports writer in Philadelphia that likes to say nothing ends someone's career like a bad back or a bad marriage. So <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I've had some back spasms and that's the worst part yeah. of the year, no doubt. What is your personal definition of success? I would say it's when I've been able to align the way that I live such that the way that I live is the same way that I care for my patients, the same way I interact with my friends and my family, that it's alignment, it's skillful, it's in, you know intentional intentional I can second that intentional consistency where you're the mm-hmm. same person wherever you are now I, I get it mm-hmm. what values do you try to pass on to your kids courage kindness tenacity how many times can you get back up absolutely and last one if you had to get a quote or saying tattooed on your body what would that quote or motto say eat more plants eat more plants <laughs> perfect I think that is a perfect place to end. Dr. Christy Arts, thank you for joining us. Awesome to catch up with you. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. This is really fun. If people are looking for you online, where can they find you? Spectrumhealth.org backslash lifestyle medicine. You can visit our, our practice offerings there. You can link to some of our consumer classes. So wherever you are in the world, you can join us for some of our consumer classes if you check out that link. That is perfect. Christy, Thank you for joining us. Uh, Appreciate your time.